Lately, I've been thinking about traditions and why we hold on so, so tightly to them. Um, I had a thought the other day, and y'all are like driving around and you have those thoughts and they just come to you, you don't really know why. And it's, uh, I was thinking, how do tra- like, what's a tradition before it's a tradition? Okay, we have traditions, but before it's actually a tradition, what is it? And so um, I got to thinking, and um, I thought of some strange family traditions we have. Um, <laughs> growing up, we always played Easter on bingo, or bingo on Easter. That would be weird too, but um, we played bingo on Easter, and we called it Easter bingo. And um, instead of having like an Easter egg hunt or anything like that, we would just play bingo. And if you won, if you bingo, then you got to take like a bunny or an egg or something like that. And... It was probably sometime in high school where someone's like, so what are your family going to do for Easter? And that's oh, the normal. Uh, you know, we're going to go to church, probably eat lunch. Family's coming over, we're going to play bingo. And they're like, you're going to play bingo? And I was like, y'all don't play bingo on Easter? <laughs> and it only took like three more times, and I realized maybe that's just the Watts family thing, you know? Um, another one I was thinking of uh, for college students, we have some college students here, yeah? And those of y'all that went to college, you remember the first day of class? You find a seat, what's the rule? Okay, that's okay. Casey wasn't very studious. <laughs> but, um, no, there's an unspoken rule after like the second or third day. You don't swap seats. You find a good one, um, and you sit there, and like the rest of the class, or the rest of the semester, like, that's my seat. So if I walk in and you're sitting there, I may not say anything, but I'm going to be frustrated. That happened to me in freshman English. I didn't, get ne- I didn't get to sit next to this girl I wanted to sit next to, and look where it got me. Okay. <laughs> but... Uh, no, those are traditions, those are things that we're, that we're used to. And if you get me out of my comfort zone, if you take what I'm used to away from me, I'm going to be uncomfortable. And so, I, with traditions, um, I, I was thinking comfort becomes our preference. So we find something we like, I begin to prefer that. If it's a food, if it's a chair in the church, if it's a chair in your living room, okay? What you find comfortable, you begin to prefer. Is that fair? Would you all on board with me there? And then what you prefer, what you prefer kind of becomes your tradition, and so, um, I've picked up habits from people in my family or from my parents because I grew up doing what they like to do. And so, uh, I thought it was the weirdest thing that my dad liked to watch golf growing up on Sunday afternoons after church. And sometimes on Sundays, I get home now, and I'm tired, and I'm like, I wonder if I can get the tournament on today, you know? Like, we're gonna, um, no, but so, it's what you're used to. It's what you grow up with it. And no one likes giving those up. And I think, that's, I think that's human nature. So I'm not trying to um, knock down your traditions or what you're used to. But I think something that uh, we're going to look at today, being aware of, is that sometimes our traditions, what we're used to, gets in the way of what God's calling us to. And at that point is when it becomes a sin, and it becomes something we don't need, and it becomes a distraction. In fact, um, we can even idolize it. And so my question today is what happens when a group of people begin to worship and obey their own traditions instead of God's word? Or um, what happens when we begin to idolize our comfort? Like I said we're in Mark 7, um, but before we start reading, if you guys would praise me real quick. Father, uh, thank you just for the, the chance to open your, your word with your people today. I pray that you uh, remove anything distracting um, from our hearts or from our minds and just let us focus on your word. God, not, not what I think of or um, what I want to say a little bit. Things that I pray that you would speak through me, that these people, um, that we would hear what, what we need to hear from you specifically. Um, I'm confident, Father, that if you speak and you move in a mighty way, that um, we will respond. And um, thank you for, for Jesus. And um, I pray today, too, that's the behind all of this, that his gospel, the good news of him coming is what, what we're focused on. 
Amen. <clears throat> so Mark 7, we're going to read verses 1 through 13. We'll work back through them later on, but just to kind of give us a feel for the passage. And I'm going to go ahead and read through the whole passage. You guys follow along with me, and we'll, we'll work back through it. So Mark 7, chapter 1. It says, The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. They observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs that they have received and they keep, like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands? Jesus answers them. He says, Isaiah prophesies correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching his doctrine human commands. Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. He also told them, you have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your own tradition. Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever speaks evil of father and mother must be put to death. But you say, if anyone tells his father and mother... Whatever benefit you have received from me is Corbin, that is, an offering devoted to God. You no longer let him do anything for his father and mother. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many similar things. So before we jump into this, I want to say the first thing that God showed me in this passage is that um, if you want to promote self-righteousness in your family or your church or your home, or you want to put yourself in a spot where you feel like you're, you're doing what you're supposed to, you just lower the bar. Okay, when you lower the bar, all of a sudden you can meet these expectations. And so after years, um, they had taken God's command and they kind of turned them into their own rules. And so that's why all the Pharisees thought they had achieved what they were supposed to achieve because they missed out on what God was trying to show them. He wasn't trying to shame them, but he was making a clear point. Look, you can't keep up with me, I'm holy. And then we took that and we turned it into something on our own. And we say, well, I did go to church every Sunday this month. I tithe, I do this, this, and this. I think I'm doing pretty good. And so whenever you lower the bar, self-righteousness, it, it really prospers there. Because then all of a sudden we're all, we're all keeping up with what we're supposed to be doing. They're achievable. These man-made rules are achievable. And so what that does, though, puts me in a spot where I say, I can reach it. I can keep up. I can be enough. It's all about me. And so... Um, there's a few reasons this, thing, this, this idea and how we handle ourselves in this, like, um, ideology of, of religion, um, or idolatry of it, rather, is so dangerous. But a couple I'm going to point out is that um, when I do that, it blocks other people's view of Christ. So they look at me and they don't see Jesus, they see what I've been able to do. It also robs him of his glory, because I'm not pointing them saying, no, Jesus did this in my life. I'm saying, um, I did this in my life. And lastly, um, it kind of sums up the first two, it just it completely misses the gospel. And so, and um, that's dangerous. That's where self-righteousness grows. That's where it prospers. Matt Chandler, he's a pastor of a church up in Dallas, wrote a book called The Explicit Gospel. And uh, I'm going to read you an excerpt from it. He said, The idolatry that exists in a man's heart always wants to lead him away from his Savior and back to self-reliance, no matter how pitiful that self-reliance or how many times it has betrayed him. Religion is usually the tool self-righteous man uses to exalt himself. 
Religion is usually the tool that self-righteous man uses to exalt himself. So there's a fine line here because um, our church memorial or our denomination, the Bat, we have a pretty cool tradition, okay? Um, because my grandparents taught my parents about Jesus, my parents taught me about Jesus. And so um, the structure and, and the, the following God part of religion, that's not what Jesus is knocking here, okay? But he's saying whenever you've twisted it, to where you put yourself at the pinnacle of it instead of God, that's when it becomes an issue. And so, um, as Ridge always says, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, hey, our tradition needs to go. Something new's coming. Um, no, it's just misdirected when I point you guys to me. Or if you, if you look to um, the pastor or the deacons or what I, if I'm not pointing, if we're not as a church pointing our community to Jesus, we're missing the point. And the funny thing about us being sinful, sinful human beings is that even when something doesn't do the trick, we go back to it because we think maybe it will work this time. And so um, <laughs> the older we get, I think, though, uh, the older I've gotten, I've realized um, I, still, I still return to this. I still do this sometimes. But I get a better understanding of how big of a gap there really is between uh, me and, and holiness and what God expects. But even as, that, that, even as uh, I see that gap widening and I understand how much I really need Jesus, there's still sinful parts of me that want to do it on my own. I mean, this whole sermon is about Jesus working instead of me working, trying to prove you guys to that. And even this morning I had a thought, man, I hope they like what I do this morning. And God's like, Jeff, you're missing the point, man. Like, you're about to go talk about it. It's not about that. And so I, I, I was in here, I was praying, and I was like, Thanks for clearing that one up. Because, but it's so, it's so like, close to who we are. And I know I'm not alone in that. I know that as human beings, we want our name on it. We want our, like, we have degrees on the wall. Cool stuff that we've earned. And sometimes we want to do that with our faith, but we can't. And so this is why Jesus and the Pharisees, there was so much, like, tension between them. There's, there's such an opposition because Jesus is coming to say, hey, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm God's son, follow me. And they were saying, follow us. If you can be more like us, then you can be good enough. And so there's an opposition there. You see, the Pharisees were consumed with traditions of the elders, their man-made rules. That's what they looked for, is how to keep up with their own tradition. You know, they they took something that, they took Mosaic law, which was God-ordained. It wasn't man-made from the start. God ordained it, but man twisted it. They took something that God gave us, and they twisted it to fit their own agenda. But that never happens anymore, right? No, we see this happen all the time. Okay, something that God ordained, and we take it, and we twist it, and we say, you know what, if you made it look a little more like this, it would really fit better with how I want to live my life. But see, Jesus was consumed with the will of his Father. He focused on obedience, not his preference, not his comfort. And thank God he did, because... He did some pretty uncomfortable things and some things that he uh, pretty, it tells us in the Bible, hey, <laughs> he asked God if there's a different way we can go about this, let's do that one. But he, he stuck through the plan because he was concerned with obedience and not his own comfort or his own preference. So verses 1 through 5 of chapter 7, Jesus is teaching, probably has a following, a crowd around him, and um, the Pharisees are, they're being kind of nitpicky, okay? I'm not trying to pick on them, but they're, just, they're standing there and they're watching. 
I read this, and I kind of think of them like pulling a notepad out, and they're like, well, Jesus didn't really do it. You know, like they're trying to figure out what they can do um, <laughs> to, lower, to lower the bar a little bit, catch Jesus doing something. And so they see his disciples not washing before they eat. And not like washing your hands like we would, but like there's a ceremonial cleansing process that they've made a tradition of. And so since we, the Pharisees, are so holy, we're going to separate ourselves from like the H-E-B we just went to. We're going to wash, and we're going to eat our bread. And the disciples probably didn't care and didn't really have time for that. And so that's what they call them on. But that's all, the Pharisees, that's all the Pharisees could see because all they focused on was tradition, was rules, was what they were used to and what they were comfortable with. And so they kind of saw it black and white. Like either you do what we do or you don't. And so this is it's funny to me because we still do it today. Does anyone in here know someone who, if it's like music or food or something that's completely preference-based, says, no, this is the best. And if you don't like it, you're wrong. And I always think that's kind of funny because I'm like, how, do you, how are you going to tell someone they don't like what they don't like, you know? Or music and, I don't know, like maybe <laughs> if it's like asparagus or something. I might really like asparagus. And if John tells me, hey, I don't like it, I'm like, John, John, come on, man, you like it. It's good. But it's preference. And so that's how the Pharisees were with the rules. They couldn't see outside of it. They couldn't see inside of it. And um, whenever it's man-made stuff, preference is okay. Okay, if God ordains it, our preference doesn't matter. But if it's my rules, and I say, hey, you can only listen to, like, George Strait. Okay, some of y'all would be like, that man knows what he's talking about. Good. And others would be like, no. If it's God ordained, our preference doesn't matter. But if it's man-made, then we're going to start worshiping our preferences. So as they nitpicked and pressed Jesus, um, they got kind of a heavy dose of reality, I think. You press, you know, they pressed him a little bit. They got close, and they're saying, hey, our man-made rules here give us the chance to prove you wrong. Finally, we can catch him doing something. And so let's read verses 6 through 8. This is Jesus' response. Remember, the question he's answering is, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? Why don't your disciples do like we do? And so Jesus' response, he says, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. Whoa. You know at this point, though, okay, he's not going to answer our question. <laughs> um, he doesn't even address it. He just says, you know what? He was right. Y'all are hypocrites. You worship. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching his doctrine, human commands. And then he tells them that abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. When I came across this a while ago, I kind of couldn't, I, I couldn't skip over that. It kind of nagged at me. And I kept going back to it. And it says, abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. That's a scary place to be. Because what it's saying is that, look, I've given you my word and you've created your own. And because you held so tightly to what you made, you missed me. You missed it. And from the outside, it looks right. You look very religious. You look like you know what you're doing. But in reality, your hearts are far from me. But Jesus doesn't even address the question. And just to show some continuity in who God is, we're going to look at a verse from 1 Samuel 16, 7. Notice that Jesus doesn't answer the question. What he does, he, he addresses their heart issue. He doesn't, he's not worried about why his disciples aren't washing before they eat. He just says... You know what? The prophet was right. You worship me in vain. Your hearts are far from me. 
And so 1 Samuel 16, 7, um, we're going to hop over here for just a minute. Samuel's trying to anoint a new king, and he's doing it with his man-made eyes, or with God-made eyes, but he's, he's doing it himself. He's saying, okay, this guy looks like he'd be a good king, good fighter, tall, strong, handsome, whatever. He's using the wrong search filter, the wrong criteria. And God lets him know. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, um, this is God responding to him. He says, do not look at his appearance or his stature, because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. And so I know we're not talking about picking a king here (laughs) in Mark 7, but I think the principle holds true that the Pharisees had a lot of people convinced because they knew that man looked at the outside. They knew that if I dressed the right way, if I walked the right way, if I tied the right way, no one's going to care about the contents. I can fool you. I can sell on who I am, on what it looks like I do. And so if I teach the Sunday school class or <laughs> pray for my neighbors. Or, and, and it's so deceptive because all these things are good things. That's why it's tricky because you can do the right thing with the wrong heart attitude and it doesn't glorify God. But it looks like the right thing because man, God tells us, he says, humans don't see what I see. You're looking at the outside. And so we know that to be true. And I think if you think through your life, if you think throughout just your day-to-day how you assess people, you look at that. You look at families. You look at people's jobs, how much money they make, relationships, maybe even their actual house. If it looks good on the outside, it must be good on the inside. That's our man. That's, that's man. That's human logic. But, but Jesus corrects that. And he says, I'm not concerned with how the outside looks. Because he tells us later on in the gospel, he says, it's not, it's not what any man that defiles him. It's what comes out of him. So it's not what it looks like on the outside. It goes beyond that. And so hopefully if you're following Jesus, um, there's going to be some spiritual fruit. There's going to be some stuff in your life that looks like Jesus. That's a good thing. But there's a, there's a thin line here that we have to, I think, practice our discernment on and seeing, is the heart right? And I think, I think God, maybe not in everyone else's life, he may not show me all of y'all's hearts, but he reveals mine to me. He does it all the time. He says, Jeff, like, look at your heart the way I see it right now and see if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Or see if you're doing it for the right reasons. And that's why in the New Testament, when Paul's writing his letters, he's like, he tells them, hey, if anyone has a reason to brag, I do. Like, he's done all the right things. He's been all the right places. He's a missionary now. Like, he's got all the, yeah, that's a good Christian. But he says, he understands, he sees his heart the way God sees it. He says, you know what, no, I'm in desperate need of Jesus. So the Pharisees, they'd presented kind of a, a play. And maybe they are holding up a mask of great worship and devotion. Their lips moved a lot. They moved in big ways. But their hearts were far from God and their worship was hollow. Furthermore, they worshiped in vain because what they were doing is they were actually worshiping human commands. And they were telling people those were God's commands, but they weren't. And so the culture of the Jews had turned into one that was primarily focused on the rules. The do's and the don'ts. And the heart behind the action didn't really matter. I focused more on whether you did what you were supposed to do, not as much the heart behind it. I talk with the students about this a lot. And um, something that my mom taught me when I was younger, 
They're over there. Y'all can go say hey to them later. Um, she asked me to go clean my room once. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. But I was, like, trying to push it off. And so I think I ended up doing it, but I did it, like, a couple hours later. And I was like, sweet, mom's not going to be upset with me. And she's like, she told me, she said, Jeff, it's not obedience if you don't do it when I ask you to. And I was like, oh, okay, mom, getting a little big for your britches, right? No, but um, I think that's what God shows us too. He's saying, hey, it's not obedience if you twist it after I give it to you. It's not, you don't get to take it and then make it look how you want to look and then send it out there. Like it's not obedience if we don't do it when he asks us and if we don't do what he asks us to. You see, Jesus wants more than that. And I think it's so cool that he lets us be a part of this plan that he uses us um, to reach other people. But I also think we need to remember that he doesn't have to. God's not, he, he might be looking for a way to use me and give me an opportunity to it, but I'm fairly confident that if I don't show up, he'll find someone else to do it. See, it's not just about the task being done. It's about the heart behind it. Because when it's all said and done, all of us have an expiration date one time or another. Your heart's what's going to, your spirit, what you're taking with, that's what's going on. That's what Jesus cares about because this is going to fade away. The shell's going to fall off. You can paint the house, but it's going to get dirty again. But what was the heart behind it? And so to prevent this kind of decay... Uh, there's, there's two things, real quick, just in this area I want to show you. Um, to prevent this kind of decay in our church, or in our homes, or, or whatever you're in, in authority of, whatever you have a chance to invest in, there's, kinda, there's, there's two criteria that I want us to, to work with and to keep at the forefront of our mind. I want us to choose character over competence, and substance over style. Because... All of those things can be good, but competence without character, that's hollow worship. Those are the people who worship with their lips, but their hearts are far from them. And style without substance is the same thing. It looks good, but if there's nothing there, there's nothing there. And so if it's a youth event, if I'm with my students, I don't want it to just be flashy or to be well done. I, would, I mean, I'm cool with both of those things. If, if the character is good in it and if there's substance to it. If it goes deeper than that. So the real question we have to ask yourself here is, do we value what God values? Because God's very clear about valuing the heart, the motive, the, the person. Not the shell, you. That's what he values. And that's why he was so hard on the Pharisees, because he knew they needed him just like everyone else did. But what they were doing was going around talking to people and saying, we don't need that because we figured it out. And they weren't telling the part how they lowered the bar. They, weren't, they, they didn't share that part. <laughs> but they convinced people that they had it figured out, that they had it going on. They had the style. They had the competence. Those guys knew God's word. They knew the Old Testament. There was a lot of things they had to do to be in the spots they were in, but it was hollow. It was empty because the motives weren't right. So if God the Father places so much precedence on the heart, and Jesus, his son, who said that I and the Father are one, if he places such a precedence on the heart, that means that when we don't place value on the heart or the motive behind it, we have a very real risk of looking just like the Pharisees, of taking these things and pulling them in and saying, you know what, like it's been kind of a rough month, but I checked these boxes, I did these things. Uh, whatever, whatever it is we were taught we needed to do 
Chances are they're good things. A guy who taught me a lot in college, his name was John Randalls, told us something. And he said, the battle for you guys isn't going to be between good and bad. It's going to be between good and great. And I, at times, yeah, that's probably true. But now I'm looking at it <laughs> in, in ministry or in a chance to influence these students. Or, um, good's pointing them to me because I can do good things. Good's picking up trash that you didn't leave on the floor. Good's leaving something as good as when you got there. But great's different. Great goes beyond that because great has the right heart attitude and the right action. And that's when powerful things start to happen. In verse 8, Jesus tells them, he says, Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. There's an important thing here that Jesus teaches on a lot. And he references, if you go over to Matthew 6, 24, he talks about it there. We'll flip there in just a minute. But when push comes to shove, you can't hold on to two things at once. You're going to hold on to what's more important to you. Or three things or however many there are. You, you try to juggle it. But when it gets shaky, you're going to grab what matters most. What matters most to you. So someone explained it to me once, like there's a throne of your heart, but there's only one. And so what's, what, is it Jesus on the throne? Or is it my desire for this? Is it for recognition? Is it for money? Is it, because I can't have both there at the same time. And so if we go over to Matthew 6, 24, Jesus tells them, No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I'm, I'm not one to copy and paste the Bible, but I think you can take what he's talking about and saying you cannot serve both God and money. And I can say you cannot serve both God and your own recognition or your own glory. Or he was teaching on money at the time, but the hard attitude there is he's saying, look, there's, there's room for one throne in your heart. And it's me or it's not. And so sometimes when life is going well, we can kind of balance it. And it's like, yeah, no, Jesus is really important to me. But like, and that's what you show. But on the inside, it's really, it's, it's something else. It's, um, am I going to preach good enough Sunday? Or will we have enough kids at youth group? Or do people think I have a healthy marriage? Do I make enough money? Does my car show people I make enough money? Does my house? Like, something like that is close behind. But we don't show that as much, but it's there. But then when things get shaky, it kind of reveals what's really going on there. And something stressful comes, and it's like, oh, i got to hold on to this one. <laughs> Jesus tells them here, he says, you can't serve two masters. You can't. Not well. And so... When we let our comfort and our preference and our tradition rule our hearts, or if we're idolizing our comfort or our preference or, or just how we like things, that's what's going to win every time when there's a bit of a tug of war between what God wants and what we want. Because that's what we're serving. And as soon, if it lines up and I can do this thing that will look like it glorifies God, but it's also validating myself, great, I'll be there. But as soon as there's a separation there, well, it's different. Because <laughs> there's, a, there's, a there's a tug of war back and forth. So, as disciples, we have to die to our comforts, or else they will dictate our decisions and our behavior. And so, uh, Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 2, 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. He's... He's telling him, I've been crucified with Christ. Like, it's not about Paul anymore. 
And guess what? <laughs> Paul probably had to make that decision every day. Or if he was like me, lots of times every day. And say, you know what? It's not about me anymore. Amen. One more part of this passage we're going to look at real quick. Because I think it paints a good picture of what Jesus was talking about. I think it's why he brought it up. This idea of this, this thing called Corbin. A gift devoted to God. That sounds pretty good, right? Like if you're like carrying something and your friend's like, hey, what's that? And you say, oh, it's Corbin. It's my gift that's devoted to God. And you're like, good job, you know? And... But no, this was, their, this was the, a thing they had created, they had done here. It talks about in verses 10 through 13, you follow along. He says, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is Corbin, that is a, an offering devoted to God, you no longer let him do anything for his father and mother. You nullify the word of God by your own tradition that you have handed down. And you do many other similar things. So we talked about there being a thin line between some things because of hard attitude. And it can, it can be the right thing for the wrong reasons. Corbin, they actually, it, was a, it was a gift devoted to God. They would give it to the temple. And they, but you know what they could do with it is they could stamp it and they could kind of say, you know what, I want this to be used. It could be pulled out of the temple and used for secular things to help the community. And so if I gave this gift, I devoted it to God, but I told them there's a really big pothole in front of my house. Can you all like, come and get that taken care of? It's a gift devoted to God. And I can tell my mom and dad, hey, I was going to help you out, but I can't because I devoted that to God. Like, who's going to touch that? You know? I had to give it to God. Okay, that's a pretty cool thing. But what it's doing is actually going in the temple and it's coming back where you want it. You never let it go. You never gifted it. And he's saying, you have this tradition, you've created this thing, and all it really does is keep your people from taking care of their mom and dad like God told them to. It keeps them from fulfilling God's word. He tells them it nullifies it. It's void. It cancels it out. I think it's a perfect picture picture of what they did and what we can do today, too, of twisting a law that God's given us to benefit ourselves. Lastly, if you look closely at verse 13, he says, You nullify the word of God by the tradition that you have handed down. And you do many other similar things. That might be the part of this passage that, that bothers me the most. Because we talk about discipleship a lot in our church or with the students or the legacy you're leaving, or like the footsteps, you know, like pulling people, follow me as I follow Christ, that type of thing. But I think something we skip over, not intentionally, we just forget about it, is that you can disciple people towards the wrong things too. You can pave the way to a bad habit, or to the wrong group of friends, or to the wrong activities, just as well as you can lead people towards Christ. And so hopefully when I say follow me as I follow Christ, I'm actually following Christ. That's the goal. But he says that you've nullified the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. These Pharisees he's talking to weren't the ones that made this rule. They weren't the ones that made this up. It was their dad or their dad's dad or their dad's dad's dad, like way on down the line. But it's been handed down. And so this causes me to stop and check. Like I don't want to nullify the word of God in my life, but I also don't want to pave a way for it where students that come through our ministry or if I have kids one day, or grandkids or whatever, that they follow that tradition too. I want my traditions to point my students to Christ. Or our family or whatever it is. And so, in your life, is there something, a tradition that you realize that maybe 
maybe you, you wish that it wasn't setting an example, and you, you want to consolidate, but hey, follow this, follow this Jeff 60% of the time, or 80, you know, however good of a day you're having, and the other, like, 20 or 40% just don't, you know, that's the whole, like, do as I say, not as I do. That's bad leadership. That one's for free. Okay, that's bad leadership, okay? Um, no, you put forth what you, what you do is what they're going to do to the people who are following you. And so it's kind of heavy here because Jesus is pressing a lot. And I think what's cool, though, is that that's not the end of the story. It's not that, hey, you've done a bad job. I think he's challenging us here. And as, I'm going to ask the band to come back up. We're about done. But if I am trying to meet these rules and expectations myself, I'm going to have to cheat. I'm going to have to cut a corner. I'm going to have to do something to make it look better than it really is. And while I might look like I achieved the goal, it's actually a burden. But if you give it to Jesus, if you let him take it, you don't have to cut corners. He ran the race. He wasn't disqualified. He did it the right way. And so when I rely on him for it, I don't have to cut corners. I don't have to worry about whether I'm good enough or not anymore. I can just own up and say, you know what? I know I'm not good enough. But Christ in me. And that's the power of what he's teaching them here. He's saying that not only have you passed down a faulty tradition, what you've done is you've burdened the people that are following you because you're saying they have to achieve it themselves. But that's not the gospel. That's not what Jesus taught. And so while my tradition might end up nullifying or avoiding God's word, Jesus fulfills it. He fulfills it, okay? While I might cut corners, he doesn't. So I can leave a faulty tradition or a faulty path of discipleship but if we're following Christ, there's no cut corners, there's no cheating, there's no whitewashed tombs. Because you know a tree by its fruit. And if Jesus is in your heart, that's what's going to grow. It may not happen instantaneously. I know there's a lot of y'all in here who, who would agree that it takes time. Sometimes more time than we wish. But he's refining our character if we're in Christ. So the two questions I have for us today, collectively looking at this, is who do I serve? Am I serving God or am I serving my tradition or what I've decided I need to do? Am I trying to serve Christ or am I trying to serve myself? And secondly, am I abandoning his word in my life so that my preference or my traditions or my comforts can thrive? Because that's what the Pharisees had to do. They had to twist God's word. They had to push it at a distance so that their own rules could thrive. Because if you're clear with it and you hold God's word to your life, a lot of times it's pretty clear what looks like him and what doesn't. And if that's not enough, his Holy Spirit will convict you. He shows us. So three things today. Finally got to my points here right at the end. For this to take place, for us to not become a church that worships its traditions more than it worships God. We have to be managers, not owners. I've worked for some pretty good managers, and they were the ones who treated it and cared for and worked just as hard for whatever organization as if it was their own. But they understood in an instant, if the boss changed his mind, it wasn't their call. That's a good manager. I want to take care of what he's given me like it's my own. But I don't ever want to think that it's absolutely mine. And as soon as he starts saying, Jeff, you need to steer a little more this way, let him. Be managers, not owners. Secondly, we need to seek to be obedient, not to be right. 
Because sometimes obedience doesn't get us the recognition that we want right away. It may not look as good on the outside as some other choice, but in the end, when you're done running your race, he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, if you've been obedient. So we have to have, lastly, a kingdom vision. Because we understand that his will and his moving are sometimes going to push me out of my comfort zone or out of my preference. And it may not even seem worthwhile right when we get there. It was a big challenge to move here to Temple and start. And it was, it was new. And it's the first time I hadn't had just a ton of people I knew around me. And it's been awesome. I love it. I love you guys. I love this church. And I can't imagine the last year and a half or so without it. But when I got here, I was thinking, okay, if God's telling me something crazy is going to happen. And so we got here for three months, and I was like, it looks kind of the same, like, what you doing, God? <laughs> like, validate my decision, <laughs> reward this obedience. But he said, no, Jeff, sometimes it takes time. Like, okay, you came here, and that was obedient, but are you going to be obedient here? And so we want to, like, take a step and go, okay, bless me, and step. Like, but no, like, follow through with it, be obedient. Have the kingdom vision and understand there's some stuff that he might be asking you to do that doesn't make sense until the end. But it's for his glory. So I'm going to pray. We're going to have a time of response. And my prayer has been this week that if there's something that that God's pointing out in your life that uh, this is a man-made, this is a Jeff-made tradition in my heart, and he's asking for something different, or he's asking you to let go of it, he may not even want to remove it. He might just want to remind you of who's king in your heart. Do it. Altar's open. I'll be down here, maybe a couple others to pray with you. We're not asking you to, to spill the beans on it. We just want to pray for you. And if you don't know who Jesus is, then everything today, it's valuable, but it doesn't really matter yet. Because being comfortable, it's kind of, it's kind of a, I don't know if a paradox is the right word, but it's comfortable to stay in your pew and not come forward. But it's really uncomfortable to go through the rest of your life not knowing if you're good enough to make the cut to go to heaven. That's really uncomfortable. And so Jesus tells us, he says, hey, like, my burden is easy, my yoke is light. Like, if you come hang out with me, it's going to be tough sometimes, but I will take that burden from you. And we find comfort in that. If you don't believe me, ask someone in here who's been following Jesus for a while, and there's great comfort in that. This time, it's just for worship, it's for response. Do, do what God's laying on your heart.